happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode number 241 for December 8th, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the fabulous University of Montana campus right here in beautiful Missoula, Montana, in the heart of Western Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am well. I've got my blanket here because it has gotten a, a little cool. I know you'll laugh, but, you know, it was it. we've dipped below freezing. I think it's supposed to be in the high 70s on Friday, so figure <laughs> out how that works. <clears throat> but anyway, we've had some, we have a fire in the fireplace right now, and it's feeling... A little bit cool. I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, but what that means is I get to teach all of our computer classes to fifth and sixth grade, which we call media literacy classes, and be an advisor and work with with um, teachers a bit on some instructional coaching. So we are going to talk a little bit about the weather, but not mostly. Are you guys had fires and and then it was like really hot, so. Has that changed for you guys? Uh, yeah, uh, very interestingly. Um, so last week we had record temperatures at the beginning of the week. And when I say record temperatures, not record for the day, record for the month. Uh, there were two days where um, we we smashed the daily record. And then one day we smashed the, uh, the monthly record for a high temperature. And that was across the state. And we did have some terrible uh, uh, grassland fires that, that in one case, most of a, a small town in, in uh, northeastern Montana uh, did burn to the ground. So very, very, very terrible situation. But uh, this week uh, we've had snow uh, dump. And in fact, uh, I think it was Monday night. We actually closed the office down a little bit early just because it was dumping snow. And when it first dumps snow, uh, even in Montana with, with Montana drivers, it takes everyone a day or two to kind of, uh, you know, remember, uh, how to drive in snow. So, uh, I, it took me, it, it takes me generally 10 minutes to drive home, uh, from my office at the University of Montana to my home in central Missoula. And that night I was able to get home in 20 minutes only because I have a back route that I take. If I, if I'd taken my typical route home, it would take me 45 minutes. So, um, so winter is here, but, you know, we're very thankful for winter here because the more uh, snow that dumps, the less likely the state lights on fire during the summertime. Absolutely. All right. Well, what are we going to discuss regarding technology tonight? Well, um, uh, we've got a lot of things uh, on the agenda. As a reminder, you can go to our website at techsr.com slash links and check out everything uh, that we're working on or have worked on, whether we get to it any night or not. I think we're up to 307 pages of links. In fact, I think even the table of contents is like 10 pages now. We're really working to break Google Docs is, is kind of our goal here. Um, with a large comprehensive document. But tonight we've got a variety of stories, including privacy stories, some security stories. We will uh, cover the social media and tech correction, uh, a bit of an international flavor tonight with Russia and China articles, uh, some AI information, some interesting developments over at Microsoft, uh, some big data in school information, Google News, Apple News, uh, some connectivity uh, news, and then, of course, our potent potables category known as miscellaneous here at the Edict Situation Room, and we'll end our night with the Geeks of the Week. And Wes, you were our leader tonight on Lynx, so I think you have your finger on the pulse of the news. Where should we start tonight, sir? Okay, well, let's start with the privacy article that's right at the top. Um, this is from a newsletter that I subscribe to, which is absolutely fantastic. It's called The Markup, and this is from their December 6th issue, um, and it's titled The Popular Family Safety App, Life360 is selling precise location data on tens of millions of users. <clears throat> so this is one of these articles that could go in a variety of categories. Uh, it probably could go in the tech correction because these kinds of articles, you know, lend more, you know, fuel to the fire of saying, hey, what are we doing? Letting, you know, these companies uh, monetize the surveillance capitalism model where we're all parting with our data, um, but we're parting with it at a cost. Um, and so um, the article, <laughs> it actually inspired me to make a little info pick. So I'll put the link to the article in. But um, the quote here would, would not be the quote from Life360, but the, in fact, 
you know, motto could be, you can watch where your kids are, and so can anyone who buys this information. So I actually um, made, and here's the tweet for that, made a little info pick with that and, and tweeted that out. Um, so I, as, a, as an, a, a related aside about this, okay, so Life360, we don't use it with our family. Um, we're an iPhone family, so we just use Find My iPhone. And we've sometimes we have trouble, not because I don't think the kids are like, oh, we're turning off the sharing of of uh, location. But anyway, that's, that's the way we just find out about each other. I'm amazed all the folks that use life 360. Um, you know, the, the girls in my daughter's sorority use that and they know who's in the house and who's gone, you know, in terms of like, Hey, we need something to, you know, happen or, or be done. Um, you know, significant others that, that track each other, uh, parents that track their kids. I've heard stories of, Parents who've threatened their children because they can see that they're off campus at college. Talk about helicopter parent, you know, that they're going to do something with the money they won't receive or other just kind of ridiculous, terrible things because they're watching their phone and mom's like saying, oh, my gosh, you're not on campus. So anyway, I think this is an important thing to note that the data that we share Number one, of course, it can be hacked. And so any anybody could potentially get that. China can get that. A company can get that. Some bad actor can get it. It can go on the dark web for sale. Um, that's a reality. But then this idea of location data <clears throat> and then does that matter? You know, what could that how could that location data be used against you? Would it be? You know, does that trouble you? Is that a is that a you know shoulder shrug? Oh, well. Um, so I, I think it, it's really important because that is part of the whole surveillance capitalism model is, you know, there's a lot of data and this, this phone, like no one could have devised a better, you know, way to keep track of a population. Let's think China, but it's also true in the United States to, to, to some varying degrees, you know, than the smartphone. So that article is excellent. And then the other one that I put in that it references that I had not read before, this is a little older one from September 30th, uh, really just kind of lays out a, a lot of the background here. And the headline of that is there's a multi-billion dollar market for your phone's location data. A huge but little known industry has cropped up around monetizing people's movements. And so again, a shout out to Apple computer for putting this button now on the phone when you are first running an app after you do this upgrade to whatever we're on iOS 15 or whatever, it says, do you want to allow tracking? Because a large majority of people are saying no to that. And that is, is I, I heard somebody or read somebody the other day say they don't think Facebook would have pivoted with meta and all of this stuff if Apple hadn't made that decision, like that is having a significant impact on Facebook's bottom line. And, you know, it's, I think it's a good, it's a step in the right direction to give us some more proactive control over our data, but it certainly doesn't solve issues like this where people are using a tracking app and, you know, their data, which they did not agree to be sold, or they, they, they probably didn't know that when they clicked the little box after the right. 50 page, you know, Yes, I agree. So how about you, Dr. Neifer? Uh, I know that you've been roaming around in your house a lot over the last couple of years. Has the Life360 app really enabled your wife and, and you to just keep track of each other in some wonderful ways? And, right. And are yeah, you, see are where you I am at all? The, yeah, I see where I am in the rest of the house. Um, right. I, I, it's interesting to me because I do think there is a lot of value, uh, like, like good value in in uh let's let's ignore the creepiness of this for a second of, of location date and i'll give you an example of this that um i i'm uh pretty decently sure that google monetizes maps data right like that they sell it to people but as an example of where there could be a public good to this data transfer is 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 with traffic patterns right that when you go on your phone and google maps tries to route you around terrible traffic um, it doesn't do that because of you. It does that because of you and everyone else, right? Knowing where you're at and how fast you're going, how busy things are at, are uh, those are all location data pieces that it, it, it attempts to share back with you as an end user. But the bottom line is that, um, you know, I there's there's just seems to be 
not as much cognizance as there should be about how specifically your data is sold and, and, and how it's monetized. And the reason why the free architecture exists for so many services on the internet is not because uh, of people's altruism. It's because they have to find a way to, to, to pay for the servers, the development, uh, the salaries of people that lead these co companies and corporations uh, to be able to do that. And I guess, you know, that's something I am very concerned about that we just still don't have very much cognizance of that as, as a typical end user. And in fact, if anything, um, you know, uh, people concerned about not a politics show, we certainly don't, um, um, uh, certainly don't, um, uh, 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 well, interesting piece about this is that folks that, that suspect that vaccines, for example, have privacy implications to them and then still use their cell phones for things or Facebook, uh, as a good example of this, that, you know, I, I think there isn't a, a you know, very much cognizance of, of how complex, um, uh, complex the situation is for all. So, um, I, I think the one thing I, I think everyone really does need to know that I think is super important um, is that, you know, we need to do something uh, about it. Uh, 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 not necessarily not use it, but be very conscious when apps, um, are asking for our location data. And even if you get novel use out of something like this Live 360, understand that that comes at a cost, right? That, um, I trust Apple more than I trust almost every other actor with privacy because of, of actions they've taken. But Apple too has a, a, a an interest in in knowing where you're located at. And although they may they may only use it internally for their purposes, even decent actors like Apple, um, uh, you know, uh, may not be a hundred percent. Uh, uh, may not be a hundred percent on, on your side. So, um, you know, something to be super conscious of. Um, I, I think these are also school lessons too. And one of the upsides I think of the, uh, lately of the kind of hyper focus on, on student data privacy is also letting students know that one of the reasons why we don't allow you to go and sign up for anything with a school account or with your own account to complete assignments or to utilize it as part of a process is we know that if it's free, there's probably some implication of that to you. I think it's a very good development we have in schools, but you know, you're going to hear this actually a couple of times tonight. You being very hyper-conscious about what you're exchanging in exchange for that, I think is really important. So this conversation reminded me of something we mentioned on the show months ago. Uh, it's the app Jumbo. <clears throat> I don't know if it's for Android, actually, I, it, iOS. Uh, Jumbo has a free tier, and then you can subscribe, but it allows you to take more control over your privacy settings. Facebook is terrible about this, but Google can be tough, too. You know, there's there are a lot of things that you could do, but are we delving into these settings? And then how do you decide? Um, mm -hmm. one of my, and so anyway, I just recommend Jumbo. I think I was paying for it for a while, and then I, I stopped that, that subscription. But one of the things that connects to this GPS issue is you can choose to delete your you know, saved GPS information, like from Google Maps, like after 30 days or something like that, not to just keep it perpetually. I mean, I really like the YouTube history, and I don't think I've ever deleted my YouTube history, and yep. I don't plan to. Uh, I mean, if you accidentally click on a video and you're like, okay, I don't want to see, you know, all these ads for new cookware or whatever, you know, you can, you can delete an individual video. And by the way, that's a, that's a very important media literacy lesson to share with folks of all ages is, you know, we train the algorithms. I was just watching Will I Am on a, there's a great YouTube originals documentary series uh, called the age of AI. And uh, anyway, I was showing this to my kids today and he was talking about, you know, training the machine. What do you do about that, Jason? Do you delete your GPS data from Google maps? Are you good, you know, just leaving it and not worrying about it? Cause that's one of those things that I was like, not sure in jumbo. Okay. Cause I, I don't really know that I get value out of Google having an historical record of everywhere I've ever been with my phone. So do you have a thought on that? Um, no other than, well, yeah, I mean, I don't delete my GPS data. I will also tell you too, that I've never deleted my YouTube history either. And 
you know, part of it is that this is a terrible argument, but I'm going to make it anyways. I mean, I have nothing to be embarrassed about in my YouTube history, right? And I'm not saying that because everyone's deserves privacy, no matter what you're doing with YouTube, right? So, um, even if you're, you're acting nefariously, I, I still think that, that, that it's like a library book for me, right? We have absolute right to check out whatever book we want to the library without other people knowing about it. That's, uh, that's a protected right in the United States, a Supreme Court affirmed protective right, right? But, um, I also, you know, uh, I, I could see a scenario where if I was just, I feel like that the logarithm wasn't giving me what I was looking for, that I could see, you know, maybe deleting and starting over again to see if I can't reformulate what it's delivering to me. But, you know, I, you know, I, I YouTube keeps me interested in part because it keeps serving me up, uh, videos that, um, uh, 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 is pretty great. Um, and so I don't feel the need to delete that, even though, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, it's, I, I would actually, I would call it embarrassing, uh, that some of the stuff that, uh, um, uh, I look at, it's not, it's not, it's not bad or it's not illegal or anything, but you know, I watch a serious number of airline traffic video, every airline traffic control radio videos, for example. And I don't care that people know that, in fact, I'm saying it here on this public podcast, but it's silly, right? But you know, that's, that's data that I hope is protected. But you know, whenever you use any service for any purpose, it's probably tracking you in a way that that you're not comfortable with. And, um, you know, if you sign in the terms of service and the terms of service says that we may sell either anonymized or perhaps even not un 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 anonymized data on how you use our service or what you're doing inside of there, um, I could see that being very much an issue. So, yeah. Well, these are things that are good to wrestle with. Uh, and certainly being aware of it is sort of the beginning of, enlightenment and action and you know it may it may be that that action is not warranted but we certainly need to be aware of it and as this article points out it's like a 12 billion dollar industry a lot of these are names we just haven't heard of okay they're really happy to stay under the radar and not be uh you know household names and the, these are really significant players in the digital economy um and you know it's important for us to know about them and what they're doing and while we may not be able to enact privacy laws in our country or, you know, globally or make, you know, other kinds of large changes, we can make individual choices about these kinds of things. And we can encourage students and teachers to make, you know, wise choices about them as well. And those choices are going to look different depending upon a variety of contexts. But it's good to know that there could be some uh, some 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 negative aspects to that. And drawing that to people's attention is a good thing. So. All right, where to next, Dr. Neifer? Uh, let's see here. Um, well, there, there's a lot of interesting things that, that are going on right now. Um, let's we have like more about... topics ever. Than... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. This might be our big one. Um, let's talk some, some tech correction and social media. Uh, there are, uh, there's, there's really two stories here, even though I've got three links. The first one is that we reported earlier this year about Twitter Blue. Uh, which is a new service that's available from Twitter. And um, uh, uh, the reason why I want to mention this is because I did subscribe a couple weeks ago to Twitter Blue because Twitter is a big thing for me. Um, it's, and it's actually, I don't, I, mean, I share a lot of article links and there is some light banter that goes back and forth with me and some friends, including uh, Dr. Fryer here, uh, that then, in fact, that's the way Dr. Fryer and I first met was on Twitter. Um, but I was just curious more than anything else. And I will tell you that I've always been very concerned about advertising on Twitter because every sixth tweet you scroll is an advertisement, right? Like that, that's the piece that I think is very concerning. But Twitter Blue is now, um, uh, now a reality, uh, in, in, in the United States. And I paid $2.99 a month for one, um, uh, uh, one month of Twitter Blue. And I just wanted to share a couple of observations about being a Twitter blue user. So the first thing is, is that, and I don't really understand necessarily the value of this uh, um, uh, at the cost level. Um, some articles come ad free. So, so they have deals with a number of, of uh, websites that offer content, including the Washington post, the Atlantic and Buzzfeed, uh, the Hollywood, uh, uh, reporter and also the verge. And when I click on an article from Twitter, not like, not, not if I just go to the article, but if I click on the article from Twitter, uh, it's ad free. 
right? Which is nice, right? And for some of these websites, I think it may even give me the ability, um, well, no, I'm just reading the, the Verge article right now. It doesn't allow you to go past paywalls, but it does allow you to have the article ad free. That's nice. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I do use ad blockers just because advertising can sometimes be a real functional problem for me when surfing the web. I have mixed feelings about doing that, but I guess this helps those, those creators so that, that, that's fine with me. Um, it also adds a feature in the mimics, um, and I forgot the name of the app that, that Nuzzle, that Nuzzle, where I can go and see all the articles that have been most shared in my network in the last 24 hours. That's a very positive thing. And I like that, although I will tell you that um, it seems to have less function for me than Nuzzle used to because the list isn't that long. So my top articles list isn't super great. Um, um, but here's the part that I don't really get. Like, I thought I was going to get out of Twitter advertising for this, and it would be worth the $2.99 a month for me with the amount that I use Twitter, particularly for news. Um, to be able to get out of, of, of the advertising, but it does not give you an ad-free experience. And so you're paying just for add-ons to Twitter, not, um, uh, uh, not, not to get rid of the advertising. And, um, as I've talked about several times in the past, the best $10 I spend every month is uh, YouTube Premium, which gets me out of advertising when I'm logged into my account. And it honestly makes the difference for me between using YouTube or not, because the advertising I perceive is so obnoxious on on on, uh, on YouTube that it was a detractor for me utilizing it as a tool. So for me to spend $9.99 a month and get some other features too that are also quite useful, it was very much worth it. So I want to report that, uh, that I've, I'm doing it. Um, I'm, you know, I'm in a month now. I think I, I think I purchased this around Thanksgiving. So, um, I'll, I'll report back if I decide to keep the subscription or not. I do love it that it's really easy to get rid of subscriptions, um, on an iOS device as opposed to a, um, uh, uh, other platforms where sometimes it's hard to get rid of subscriptions. There's just one sheet you go to in iOS and you can get rid of, of anything you subscribe using the Apple system. But I wanted to make that report. That is huge. I literally just subscribed to Twitter Blue while you were giving that report because I knew this was coming, but I, I had missed that it was here. And I just wrote yesterday or this weekend or something about how much I miss Nuzzle and that function because it, it's a real bummer when you have something you love in an app and then it goes away. So um, I, I'm i going to give that a shot as well. The main – I mean the ad block – I mean I I guess I would probably like to not have ads in, in Instagram or Facebook. I don't know. They're not horribly distracting. Um, but the main thing I'm interested in – I would use probably every once in a while that edit your tweets feature or just be able to, you know, I guess, I, I, can you edit it after however much time you want or is it only? I haven't even tried it. I yeah. I think, you know, that's a great feature, but I, I think that should be just baked into the platform. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, the main thing I'm, I'm excited about is this idea of curating, you know, tweets. In fact, I, I looked on the app store tonight. I was uh, sitting in the car while my wife was, going in and purchasing something in the store and I was looking under social media news apps and there, there's actually apparently a few more free speech uncensored apps. Um, anyway, they're touting themselves as, you know, anyway, these are just uh, parlor-ish um, apps that, that are that are there, but I didn't see anything else that was like, you know, filter your, your feeds to get your top recommended you know, links from, from friends. Yeah. So I'm thrilled that this is going to be a feature and hopefully they're going to enhance this and make it better. Uh, and they probably will. Right. So it's, it's starting out, but maybe we can provide feedback, but yay. Some, cause what, what does happen, this happened to, to the posturous team. I don't remember who actually bought that. Mm -hmm. It was Google, but like they just, the, the whole thing died. Well, and that was posturous, right? Yeah. It, they, it, it was just gone. Uh, and there wasn't anything else that could do exactly what it did. So in that case, the uh, the company was bought, I think, for the brain power of of its employees and founders. And anyway, yay for Scroll and and Twitter resurrecting this feature. I think Peggy's probably um, 
probably good about this. So yeah, Peggy put in the tweet, she thought that Twitter destroyed Nuzzle. Um, yeah, I mean, they, um, they bought the, the company, uh, that owns it or that, op- that created it and ran it, uh, scroll. And, um, here's a quote, I guess the roundup of top articles won't be an email like Nuzzle was and said you access it on Twitter itself. Huh? Though it's only available on Android and the web at the moment. So maybe that might be why you, huh? Have you been accessing it on the web then, Jason? That's bizarre. It's not accessible through the iOS app yet. I'm sure. That oh, well, not, no, I'm using it on the iOS app. Or which part? The the curated articles, she said. Oh, it's... well, actually, that's a good question. I don't really know because I, huh. I've i only looked at that maybe twice. Yeah, so on the web now, yeah. yeah, I've got I've got a, a sidebar, um, home explorer notifications, messages, bookmarks. Oh, yeah, and then top, top articles. Top yeah, articles. I've, got the, I've got the top articles link in my, my right. uh, and that, iOS app. And that was not... Not present. So yay! This is great. This is good. Good news. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I, interesting development. We'll see. I guess is probably the well. The, and the and on, on the iOS, I don't know if you do this, but I I use Twitter a lot in Safari. I mean, I do use the Twitter app, uh, and sometimes I've had weird things where the typing is kind of weird when I'm in Safari. But anyway, if you're in the Safari mobile experience, we can validate this right now. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to suspect that it's fine because it's just going to be the the web version versus you know having um having the uh, I don't know. I don't see it right now, but we'll explore. I'm excited. Hey, look at this. See, don't ever say the EdTech Situation Room doesn't change your life because <laughs> I'm now a Twitter Blue user thanks to yeah. Jason's report. So <laughs> nice. That's, ex- that's outstanding. And it also shows just how much tech news there is during a week or two and how hard it is to keep up with stuff. So, hey, that's why we're here for each other. <laughs> if for no one else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if, if for no one else. So, and I guess Peggy. And for Peggy. Peggy. That's right. So, Peggy's here. Uh, there's two other quick articles I want to share. It was reported in two different locations. 9to5Mac, actually, probably everyone had an article on this today. 9to5Mac had an article, and CNN Business had an article. But the CEO of Instagram uh, was on Capitol Hill today to testify. It's the first time anyone from the meta company, I guess is what they're calling themselves now, has been on Capitol Hill since the whistleblower was there. So uh, a lot of, of heightened interest of that today. Um, one of the things that they're talking about is the accusation that Instagram is problematic for teen mental health. And um, one of the things that I wanted to say about this is, is that they're continuing to, and in fact, I saw a lot of coverage on this today. They're continuing to mention the research uh, that that they've been doing internally about body positivity and teens. And that's one thing they want to say. He also said that, and this is the part that I think is most interesting, is that Instagram is planning on bringing back a chronological feed next year as an option for for people so that uh, that they're, they're hoping to make the app less addicting is the idea here. So in other words, the the logarithm is is built. I mean, I guess that's an admission that the logarithm's purpose uh, to at least uh, Instagram as a company is to keep you interested and engaged in the app, perhaps beyond the amount of time that uh, um, uh, uh, you would otherwise want to be. I will say Instagram has built in some interesting other tools. They allow you to um, to stop posting the count of likes uh, directly in the feed, which I think is is a step in that direction. Um, I will also tell you that um, they have controls in place, too, that where you can set an amount of time if you want, and it warns you when you exceed that time, not unlike Insta uh, or not like Insta, uh, TikToks, um, uh, they've got a, a method where you could set a, a four-digit code uh, for your kid for if you want to, to say they get 20 minutes of TikTok or 40 minutes of TikTok, and it forces you to type that PIN number in to get back to the app. Um uh, he also mentioned something that's super interesting about how they really do want something to be something to happen to try to set best practices for companies. The 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 different coverages of of of, of his comments though were interesting because um, he was talking about industry groups coming together to create standards uh, that would involve regulators but not be run by regulators. Whereas as we've talked here in the past, we're not quite sure what those regulations might be, but it appears that. Um, 
uh, uh, we, we think that there is some role, maybe a significant role for government regulators here, just so there's a, uh, uh, some cognizance, um, uh, of, of, of an outside group other than, than big tech itself. So it's all part of the grander tech correction we've talked about, you know, countless times here on the podcast. And, and I do hope these conversations continue as we figure out the way to make this work for everyone. Absolutely. On the note of a chronological feed, um, you can on Twitter, and they've done this for a while, allow you, like on your home screen, I'm on the the Safari version, and I think it's in the app too, click on this little sort of magical star with some sparkles coming off of it, and then you just uh, choose if you want home to show you your top tweets first, which would be the algorithmic view, or you can uh, opt for the latest tweets instead. I honestly don't know how many people use that. Um, I have always, I kind of did like just the, you know, current view of just what's happening. Maybe when you followed fewer people or whatever, that was a, that was a bigger deal. I think lists always function that way. When you view a list, I think it's always chronological with what's been shared lately. I don't think the algorithm, I think it's really just the home feed that the algorithm, you know, works on. So anyway, those, those seem like, Good moves, but they also feel a little weird because it's kind yeah. of like asking the tobacco companies to, you know, stop trying to get people to smoke as many cigarettes. I mean, of course, that's what they're going to want to do because that's why they exist. So, um, you know, I, I think some of this is is probably tokenism in response to pressure because the tech companies do want to have self-regulation continue and not have, you know, the the, the heavy handed gov- you know, government come in and tell them to do things that are going to be potentially even more harmful for their bottom line. So the tech correction marches on. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Where, where to next? Let's see. Uh, let's do an Apple article. This is actually one I just grabbed right before the show. Uh, this is the verge today on December 8th, Epic versus Apple ruling put on hold after appeals court grants stay. We covered this over a month ago, uh, a pretty big and significant case uh, featuring the owners of the Fortnite franchise, uh, Epic Games, against Apple. And there were just different parts of this. And and they each kind of declared victory in their own way. What this stay means is that the first part of that decision by the lower court uh, was going to allow third-party payment processors for apps and for subscriptions. And that was one of the things that, that uh, Epic wanted for Fortnite was not to give the quote Apple tax of 30%, but to be able to have people directly go to them. And of course, then they get that information and they'd be able to decide if they were going to give people a discount or if they were going to charge the same and just keep more money or what they were going to do. And so the judge in the appeals court didn't reverse the decision, but said that uh, they would stay that part of it. So Apple is going to, because this is going to take months and months for this appeal to be heard. And in those months and months, Apple's going to be able to continue collecting that 30%. And there can still be, I guess, direct communication, maybe in links that people and developers can use in their apps. But the 30% Apple tax is going to remain. And I think it's an Apple spokesman in the article that's quoted talking about, you know, security and those kinds of issues. But I mean, Yes, those are real issues as, as far as if, you know, the less gatekeeping. And there's, we've covered articles on the show before about how the gatekeeping of the App Store for Apple is, is not a perfect thing in terms of, you know, ex, you know, very intensive security audits and all the, you know, deep dives into, into the app security that, that's not happening in all these cases. And it's part of the reason why watchdog journalists are really important, you know, to be able to find, you know, issues and, and bring them to people's attention, et cetera, when there's bad actors using malware and trying to do things like that. But the app store for Apple has been a more secure experience. Uh, part of that is because of the way it has been gatekept and protected. And that's part of Apple's argument along with other things for why, you know, they need to continue to, to keep their 30%. But again, on the self sort of regulation and adjustment side of this, um, Apple had made some concessions to large developers uh, as far as having some different rules apply, I think when you got to a certain million downloads, or I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, but anyway, this uh, won't necessarily be something that will probably affect us as, you know, educational technologists and, and folks in the classroom. Um, but the whole big picture of, you know, is Apple a monopoly? 
you know, are they going to be broken up? Are they going to be restricted in what they can do? Where is the intellectual property here? Does this, you know, should they have the right to, to basically control the marketplace on their, on their device in the way that they do? Um, and I don't know if I mentioned it on the show previously, but you mentioned Meta and Facebook calling themselves that. I need to get the source of this, but one of the articles I think I had read talked about how not only was Apple's decision to put the donut track maybe a big part of Facebook's decision, but Facebook doesn't have a hardware platform. And one of the things they'd like to do is control a hardware platform because that's very lucrative for Apple. And so if they can do that with Oculus and that platform, you know, maybe that's a way that they're going to be able to continue to make lots of money into the future. So I think that this will be something to continue tracking. I don't know that it's going to have earth shattering impact on our lives, you know, in the, in the immediate future, but from a developer standpoint, do you think this matters uh, at all, Jason, or is this more the, the fact that app, Apple will keep picking, you know, Epic, I don't think they led Fortnite back in and I'm not a Fortnite player. So anyway, your thoughts on the impacts here. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm not entirely. I mean, I I, I did read the legal issues uh, when they released the decision earlier this year, and I thought Apple had a point that I wasn't entirely convinced that that Epic had proved their case uh, based on the way they did that. Now, to be clear, I'm not an attorney. In fact, if anything, I'm a you know a long retired debate coach. So that that means that I don't have a, a, a necessarily an eye for this, and I don't understand the issues of law uh, that well uh, based on the amount that I've read, but. Um, you know, Wes, you bring up an important point that I, I don't think it's a settled uh, a, a situation that it's better for Apple to open up to third-party systems. Like, I think that probably is better for a lot of developers, but I think there are privacy implications to that. And the, the freer the platform, the more likely it is that uh, nefarious actors can can can, can take some uh, um, uh, some a- actions or activities here. So, um, I, I I will continue to watch this. Um, I uh, you know I, I am back in Apple universe after spending some time on Android. I will tell you that there are a lot more articles about nefarious Android apps than there are about nefarious iOS apps. And uh, if some of, 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 of these uh, laws that states have been trying to pass that try to open it up even more to say you can have alternative app stores, I'm just not sure if that serves a privacy or security very well. So uh, I guess part of my answer here is stay tuned. All right. Where to next? Well, a couple quick uh, Microsoft articles. Uh, one of them is that the new, this is just more of an information piece. There is a new UI rolling out for Microsoft Office. I believe this is Microsoft Office for Windows uh, that will have this first. And eventually I think this will uh, filter down to Mac. But for the desktop apps, um, uh, The Verge reported that uh, there's a more Windows 11 looking Microsoft coming near you. And I will say that I do think there's been a lot of progress in the last uh, uh, several years for the look of the Office desktop apps. And from what I can see, um, they look uh, uh, pretty stylish and that the toolbars keep getting a little more nuanced and, and a little bit better designed. They do take on a little bit of the cartoony icon look that I don't really like in Windows 11. I feel like that's kind of a step backwards. I prefer flatter, cleaner designs, uh, which is where the design language was going in Windows 10, but that's something to keep in mind. Probably the bigger conversation um, is that uh, this is one of several articles in the last couple of weeks where Microsoft is continuing to make it harder and harder and harder to switch to alternative browsers as your main browser, particularly in Windows 11. And, um, you know, it's always been, this is true since Windows 10 was released in 2015, that they discouraged you from changing your app from, uh, I'm sorry, your browser from then Microsoft Edge to, uh, you know, to, to Mike, or to, I'm sorry, to Google Chrome or really anything else. When you try to do that, they're like, no, 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 we really recommend Edge. And then when they released the new Edge a few years back, um, they started um, uh, 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 utilizing a messaging that, um, you know, kind of said, no, no, it's all the good stuff of Chrome without the stuff you don't like. So 
that's part of that. But not only now is it very difficult to switch your browser in Windows 11, they're now actively discouraging you from doing so. So if you open up Edge and try to download Google Chrome, it'll give you a message now that says Microsoft Edge runs on the same technology as Chrome with the added trust of Microsoft, which is a pretty pointed comment uh, in light of, well, in light of the fact that this is the company that created Internet Explorer. So um, I, I would say that, that I, I just feel like this is a recipe for a dance with regulators at some point, because this is exactly the issue that got Microsoft in trouble 20 years ago. It's exactly, it's the same issue. It's about browser bundling. And um, the bottom line is that uh, I, I, I will admit I like Windows 10 better than Windows 11, but Windows 10 was a big step forward for that company and actually had me being a Windows user for a little while because of how clean and fast the OS was. I don't think they need to be playing these shenanigans. It doesn't feel like that uh, uh, Microsoft is losing that much market share by not having the dominant browser. Um, and um, I thought it was good news that they were utilizing Chrome as, as its base. And in fact, it... it Chromium. It, yeah, Chromium, I'm sorry, as its base. But the bottom line is, is that I now have Edge installed on every one of my computers and I use it not as my primary browser, but I use it fairly regularly because it's a nice, stable browser. That should be enough for Microsoft. You shouldn't have to play shenanigans in order to have people utilize this. And at some point, the antitrust regulators are going to start sniffing around their 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 dirty laundry. We've seen this movie before, and it didn't end yeah. well for Microsoft. Uh, and unfortunately, it took it took litigation to get that to change. So. You wonder if maybe the same thing is going to be true when it comes to privacy and some of these other issues that we're talking about with tech companies. You know, it wasn't Microsoft didn't self-regulate. And it's weird. I'm surprised to see Microsoft doing that because it seems like they've changed their tune on some significant things like playing well on multiple, you know, platforms. And anyway, obviously they want people to install Windows, but. Uh, you know, I wonder if we'll ever get the backstory to that at Microsoft and whose conversations led to, you know, those kinds of warnings. And it's certainly ironic, as you point out, that the base of this is Chromium, which is which is the, the Chrome based Google based uh, platform. So, yep. may, you know, I'd, I would like to see some some better coding and some more more competition, you know, on this, because really Edge is to me and I'm not a coder. uh you know, more, more than just a, a, a dabbler. Um, it doesn't appear that the co with the code base being Chromium, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's any really significant difference um, and, and benefit to, to, to what Edge is doing. So, yeah, but I'm not a Windows user now, thankfully. Yay. So these are <laughs> yeah. not, not as important to me. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about China. So I put a couple articles in here um, for China and Russia it looks like we got about 15 minutes left in the show. This, uh, well, the first one was a, I read the December 8th article, but I'm going to do the December 2nd one first. This was an op-ed by Letta Hong Fincher. And let me just warn everyone that by saying this, <laughs> which will be transcribed probably on both YouTube and Facebook. I mean, hopefully I'm not going to negatively impact my own potential to travel to mainland China in the years ahead. But this was a guest essay or an op-ed why Ping Shuai, I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly, has China's leaders spooked. And this gives the backstory. Um, so uh, who is uh, Ping Shuai? Uh, she is a renowned tennis player, superstar uh, in China. And she came out on the uh, uh, you know equivalent platform of, of Twitter and Facebook um, in China and posted about how a leading Politburo member um, had sexually assaulted her. Uh, her English translation of a part of what she wrote in her Linkly post, it was on Weibo, which is their most popular social media platform in China. Quote, like an egg hitting a rock or a moth to the flame courting self-destruction, I'll tell the truth about you. And this was spread around the internet quickly, but state censors for China kicked in. Um, it was shared a thousand times before they could really, um, you know, try and shut it down. Uh, she has physically disappeared now. And so that takes me to the second article, which was from today on December the 8th. And this is also from The Verge. No, I'm looking on the wrong the wrong one. This is also the, uh, the New York Times, but it is today. Beige, um, Beijing silenced 
uh, Peng Shui in 20 minutes, then spent weeks on damage control. Uh, because as might not surprise us, although, you know, China has been and can be very effective in quashing dissent and stopping discussion. Uh, this has gotten the attention of a lot of folks outside of mainland China. And so to my, to my knowledge, uh, she has still not shown up like, and, and I think even President Biden, you know, and others are pressuring Beijing to, uh, provide evidence that she is safe, visual proof. Um, and so anyway, I, this, I, I'm not going to talk to my middle school kids about this because the situation involves sexual assault and I'm just not going to go there. Uh, but for older students and for really, you know, anyone else, China has radically different values than we do here in the United States with respect to free speech and the rights of folks to share things. And the, the fact that the government doesn't have the right to just disappear you when you happen to charge a public official, a government official with a crime or allege a crime. And so I think that, and we're seeing other, you know, kinds of headlines about, but the Olympic Games, I think, where the United States is now doing a diplomatic block. It doesn't mean our athletes aren't going to compete in China, but we're not going to send diplomats. I think I saw a headline today that Canada is going to join the United States. Maybe there's other European Union countries that are as well. But we have a radically different approach towards social media and, and speech here in the United States and the West than they do in China. Um, I am thankful for the journalists and for the other advocates that have spoken up and amplified this story uh, about uh, Ping Shui. Um, part of what this, these articles go into is how the Me Too movement and the feminist movement in the West, in the United States, has affected China and how the government is, that op-ed particularly up from the second, is, is very scared and nervous because if she, as a, an extremely visible um, you know, and prominent uh, celebrity in, in China can speak out in this way. Maybe other women in China are going to be empowered to speak out as well. And this could be just really bad for social control and the Chinese government, you know, keeping a lid on dissent. So I had not heard anything about this at all until I happened to see this, uh, I think on Flipboard today, you know, following a, a list that I follow there from Twitter um, I did see this article actually when I went to my Twitter blue uh, top articles. Um, it shows us one that's been shared. But had you heard about this at all, Dr. Neifer? And do you have any opinions about it? Um, I, I, I would keep an eye on this because there's been a lot of coverage on, on NPR about this. And that's my primary source for news because I usually listen for about an hour in the morning. Um, we're in, a, in an era where international politics and social media um, are really important as as, as kind of competing uh, com competing uh, situations because we would know about this ex more about the situation except for 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 social media and and the outcry there. Um, I the, the interesting thing about China and um, I know just enough of it to speak with a tiny bit of authority, which is to say that, I mean, part of China being open from a business standpoint means that its athletes and the way they're treated in their home country is now an international issue. It's not, this is an internal politics or internal affairs. This is an international incident. And um, I know that um, uh, there are a lot of international sports associations that are considering pulling uh, events from China, which is a very expensive proposition for all involved, but there's no such thing as internal affairs anymore, uh, uh, especially when it comes to international athletes. And so I continue to monitor this, but um, uh, we know a lot more about this in part because of, of, of social media and the fact that, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to hide situations than it used to be. All right. We've got about 10 minutes left. What else would you like to talk about tonight? Um, uh, I want to mention a couple quick Google, uh, uh, notes. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, Google has announced a, a technology that they're working on that's called telepresence, uh, and they're working at a telepresence booth. 
Um, I, uh, uh, it, well, I initially clicked on this for something I'll talk about in a moment because of, of a bit of a joke, but, um, basically, uh, uh, in a research paper, Google has uh, outlined, um, something called Project Starline, um, which was a demo they gave at their I, uh, that IO conference this year that I don't remember hearing about at the time, but the idea behind Starline is that, uh, it takes a very high-end computer, 8K screen, four GPUs, four microphones, and a lot of cameras to create uh, some kind of, of of AI and 3D enhanced image so that people can appear to be in real life from you even on a screen. And the demo video I looked at was extraordinary. Um, really did seem to provide a lot of, of presence. And, and and the reason why this this kind of struck me was that I had an opportunity today to talk to some folks about um, how much better video conferencing is than it was just 10 years ago. And the platforms are really easy to use. And, um, you, even when you have relatively modest equipment, uh, it's a pretty decent, uh, it's a pretty decent experience. But of course, having someone in a three dimensional way that's, that's the very lifelike in its conception would add that much more to it. So coming to, you know, uh, potentially a, 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 uh, a lab or a, an office near you, but this, 3D telepresence booth um, uh, that they're working on it is super interesting. Again, I, I I don't remember hearing about Project Starline from Google I/O this past summer. It did remind me of a funny scene from Silicon Valley, the now ended but very funny show from HBO, which poked a lot of fun um, at um, uh, they had a uh, 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 technology called the Telehuman, which was kind of a three. It was ve- very much like this. Uh, and there's a very, very funny scene um, where one of the protagonists uh, of uh, actually, I should say one of the antagonists of, of the storyline named Gavin Belson comes into a meeting. Um, and again, I will warn that um, there's some salty language in the clip, but um, uh, a very funny stuff. And uh, if you haven't watched Silicon Valley again, it's it, it it's an adult comedy. I would not recommend uh, this to show to your, your toddlers, but um, it, it did call a lot of the bizarre nature of of, of the development of tools and, and Silicon Valley in, in their bravado. So I thought that was pretty funny. Awesome. Uh, here's one under our miscellaneous that actually follows up on an article we did a couple weeks ago. This is Ars Technica from December the 3rd. Emails show what happened before Missouri governor falsely called a journalist a hacker. As you may recall, um, a journalist handled this situation in a apparently very ethical manner. The State Department of Education in Missouri was disclosing the full Social Security numbers of educators and teachers, I think, in their retirement program or something, or maybe it was just certification. But anyway, they had them in their database and they were not visible on the screen. But when you viewed source code of the Web page, you could see all of these socials. And so rather than publishing this first or whatever, they contacted them, gave them a chance to patch it um, and then they reported it. Well, the emails show that multiple officials in the government of Missouri had notified the governor's office and had these communications saying this isn't a felony, this isn't a crime. But, you know, the governor, for whatever reason, decided to call out the journalist and say they were going to try to prosecute them to the full, you know, potential of the law or whatever that phrase is, and basically showed himself to just be incredibly ignorant about how the Internet works, because HTML has always allowed you to view the source, and that is not a crime to do that. So it was just ridiculous to hear a public official say that and uh, you know apparently you know not a surprise politics politics perhaps even more than ignorance but i'm sure there's a mix of both you know kind of accounted for that um so anyway that's just a little bit of a of a follow-up and then one other miscellaneous article that i thought was just pretty interesting um this is from uh gizmodo on december 2nd microsoft makes breakthrough in the quest to use dna as data storage and this is just an amazing thing right that you know dna in the way that it's twisted and wrapped around on itself has so much information in it and so as we see in some other cases where you know, scientists and technologists um, are looking at nature and how nature works and, you know, using using sort of the blueprints of nature to, to think about what we could try and, and recreate. Um, the article is subtitled, We are producing 
The world is producing more data than we can store, but a solution could be the very molecule that contains our genetic code. And so Microsoft reported having a breakthrough um, or I guess some headway in a research paper uh, saying that it is um, allowing basically data storage to be written. It says Microsoft's predicting um, or I guess it's internet, it's IDC's predicting data storage demands will reach nine zettabytes by 2024. Um, one zettabyte would be used if Windows 11 were downloaded on 15 billion devices. Using current methods, that data would need to be stored on millions of tape cartridges. Anyway, it's saying that we're just going to have potentially, you know, some incredible ways to increase storage. So this is one of these futurism things. It's not like, hey, this is going to affect your you know, IT budget next week kind of thing. Um, but I thought that was pretty interesting. So good Microsoft, you know, there's a good Microsoft article. Yay. I haven't shared too many of those on the show. So make note. <laughs> oh, so judgy. And then um, just a note that uh, Chrome OS uh, 96 has been released. It's been rolling out the last two weeks. It does add uh, an updated uh, camera app. What's particularly interesting about it for those of you in classrooms is that uh, it's it now has a QR code scanner built right into the camera. So uh, particularly if you're using a convertible or a, a Chrome OS tablet, that's super useful. There's also um, uh, more document style uh, features on the camera app itself. And then um, there's also some new settings available in the Chrome OS settings piece. So uh, uh, it will update. On the update topic, have you updated your M1 Mac to Monterey? And if so, what's your experience been? Yeah, I did this. Um, I, I threw caution to the wind and updated both my home and work uh, M1. I have a, a, a Mac Mini at home and I have a, a MacBook Pro at work and both of them are M1 Macs. I did it very early, uh, first week on both. And uh, so far, so good. I haven't noticed any wonkiness. Um, I also noticed, too, that I, I think almost all my apps, but just one or two now, are um, uh, 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 are Apple Silicon-based and not on the Intel emulators, so that, that's been pretty nice. So, yeah, it's been pretty stable for me. I'll do one more fast one, and then I think we probably better Geek of the Week it. This is a Washington Post op-ed from Josh Rogan on November 30th. The title is, A Shadow War in Space is Heating Up Fast. Um, I'm tracking things with, with Space Force a little bit more closely, perhaps since my daughter thinks she wants to go to the Air Force Academy and maybe be an astronaut or join Space Force. Um, this is a very, very interesting op-ed piece because periodically we'll talk about space articles. And usually those are in the context of, hey, share this with your kids. It's really cool that, you know, the Mars rover has launched a helicopter, you know, something, something kind of cool and amazing. Um, but this is just talking about how the Russian explosion or, or, you know, the destruction of their own satellite this month, you know, put, I think, 15 or 1700 new trackable pieces of um, space debris up. And uh, that will continue to pose significant threats to all of the satellites and the things that are in low Earth orbit. Um, and, you know, the ways in which China appears to be weaponizing space um, it's really just like kind of a collision course that we appear to be on with both Russia and China with respect to space and the militarization of space. And of course, that has huge implications for all of us with technology, right? What would you do without your GPS? Um, you know, the number of satellites that are going up uh, thanks to Starlink and other kinds of, of projects. Um, so I just found that to be a very thought provoking piece. And I don't know, this, this wouldn't fit into the curriculum of really what we would do in a, in a computer or media literacy class, but it, I don't know. It just, we've talked about free speech and, you know, we've read, read and shared some articles where, where people seem to have some really kind of off base points about how, you know, some people think we have, you know, limit and boundary free, speech in the United States, that there's no, no boundary at all. And the constitution, you know, protects that. I mean, it, it restricts what the government can do, but not others. Anyway, it's just some thinking that I've been doing um, about Russia and China and the impact that that is having on us. And then, you know, what could be, what could be happening in the future. So it's an op-ed, but I would recommend that if you want to think a little bit about Russian U S relations and as they involve space. So my last article, I think it's 10 o'clock. So 
<laughs> here in we go another hour. So it's now a four-hour podcast. Yeah, let's peak of the weekend. So I've got a really quick one. This is via uh, uh, EdTech or Free Free Tech for Teachers, Richard Byrne, great advocate, uh, also wonderful social studies uh, 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 and technology advocate. He shared uh, a really interesting tool recently called Scribble Map, which uh, itself is a really cool tool, but you can utilize the tool without actually ever having to log in or share any personal information. So it basically allows you to take a map, Google Map, I believe National Geographic Maps are, are part of the thing. I think Bing Maps are, are, are available on there. You can put overlays on it to draw on the top of it. Wonderful social studies tool for a variety of, of, of classroom projects and uh, interactives. And uh, Mr. Byrne put together a, a really great video on, on how he would suggest using it. So uh, the link will be in our show notes. And Scribble Maps itself is pretty great. I also think um, uh, Richard's uh, perspective there and how to use it inside of the social studies classroom is top notch. And I have just one Geek of the Week, too. Mine is a podcast. Uh, it's from Ezra Klein's New York Times podcast. The title is uh, Predicting the Future is Possible, Super Forecasters Know How. And uh, this is an interview with uh, an academic I'd never heard of before, Philip Tellock. And he's interviewed by Julia Galef. They introduced me, and maybe everyone else knows about this, to hedgehog and fox thinking. Um, but the ways in which analysts, you know, basically people who are very charismatic and popular and, and have these really dramatic things to say, oftentimes are really, really poor at actually predicting the future, although they get headlines. And so, you know, reality is, is surprise, surprise, much more nuanced and complex than <clears throat> sometimes people will make it sound like in their TED talk or, or whatever. Um, fantastic. Um, podcast and it made me wonder jason if we might want to go on the record at the end of the year with our predictions for you know 2022 i don't know if we'll want to do that or not but i thought that was interesting to think about you know how how well has have you done in predicting the future um in terms of gauging your your expertise well wes wonderful where can people find you on the internet westfriar.com it's all there how about you Great. Uh, find me on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. Um, but hey, thanks for joining us tonight on the Edtech Situation Room. The Edtech Situation Room is a once a week podcast where we take the headlines and shoot them through an educational person to try to find some clarity for educators around the United States and beyond. We are on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, somewhere in the middle of the night UTC. If you can't join us live, although I wish you would, uh, please find our podcast anywhere finer podcasts are aggregated or on our website at techsr.com or on YouTube or on Facebook where we broadcast live each week and you can always go back and see the archive. Um, we encourage you to stay safe, stay savvy. Uh, we will join you next week for more EdTech Situation News. We hope you have a great week. Good night. Adios.